Welcome back, y'all, to Real Ballers Read. We have a very special guest like every episode, but this one is a writer's writer. If he didn't have a paper, he would write in his hand. If he didn't have a pen, he would write with a rock. He's written <laughs> acclaimed novels, plays, cult classic movies, musicals, written everything. This is Trey Ellis. Hey, Welcome guys. to the show. Oh, thank you for having me. Yeah, how are you doing today? I'm good. Just came from the gym, feeling good. All right, awesome. <laughs> awesome, yeah. Well, yeah, as Miles was saying, we're really excited to have you on the show. We always start off by asking our guests their story as readers, right? So, like, what has inspired your love of reading? How does that inspire your writing? What are some of those early, really important books or people in your life who really did kind of encourage that love of reading? For us, it was our mom and always making sure that we knew Real Ballers Read as like something to take pride in. So we'd just love to hear your story as well. Yeah, thanks. Similarly, my mom as well, she had, my mom and dad were at Howard together and she wanted to, she was going to law school. She, she'd been a, getting a PhD in psychology, was always sort of the more intellectual of my parents. And then, then she, she wrote a play before she died. She just did a lot of stuff and she just, we always had it. We always had a house full of books. Wow. So. No matter where we were, we just, the books always came with us. And they were also academic. So I was, I was a faculty brat growing up first at, at no offense to Ohio, but University of Michigan, go blue <laughs> and the, and then Yale and then Columbia. So wow. that was my, that was my, my sort of life through that. So that, so certainly I just felt like I got my love for writing and my, and my talent from her. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Was there like a early, early book or author who really kind of like triggered something for you or blew your mind or changed the way you thought about things? Well, I always, I was looking at some really terrific teachers and I had a member, I had a teacher in, uh, when, by the time I moved to New Haven, outside of New Haven for uh, Yale in a town called Hamden, my teacher said, if you want to be smart, see, if you think of yourself as a smart person, you should read 10,000 words over the summer, which turned out to be about a hundred, hundred pages over a hundred days. And so just me being clever, I thought, oh, plays have less there's more white space so I could just burn through some plays. So I just read, this is like at 14 or 13. I just read every Arthur Miller, I just read every play I could get my hands on. What? So that was really amazing. That was a great summer. And he sort of put the challenge down for us, the nerds in class. We want to be nerds. We'd be 10,000 pages over the summer. And then, and then I said, I always knew the line I, I say, but I think it's true. Like even in the fifth grade before that, when in, I, I just thought being a writer was a cool life. My, my feeling about being a writer was that I would have a, live on a yacht or not even a yacht, just like a, a beautiful sailboat off the coast of Nantucket and I have a beautiful wife in a bikini who would make martinis. For, I didn't know what a martini was, but I thought she'd make me a martini <laughs> and I'd have a manual typewriter and just be sort of pecking away with my shirt off on the, on the deck and I'd have a boss. So I thought that kind of life sounded kind of cool. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Not like a good life. So I just really always, I, I've, I've wanted to be a writer since, since the fifth grade, since just it sort of occurred to me, yeah, you could be a writer. Mm. And my courage said, I thought, oh, I'll just be a writer, never have a boss. And when I got to Andover Phillips Academy boarding school, I had a great teacher named Alexander Theroux, who was an acclaimed novelist. And he really took me under his wing and was really supportive. And he's kind of the teacher, like at a boarding school where you could, after school, you could just go to his place and a bunch of people just be hanging out and talking about mm -hmm. life, this grown up. So that was really sort of eye-opening, seeing the kind of life he led. He had to teach at boarding school, but he also wrote his books and 
had a this this cool life. He was he was super helpful about it. So by the time I got to Stanford, he really knew I knew I well it's it's, it's a longer story. I thought I was going to be a mechanical engineer hmm. or a physicist. I really liked science, and I thought that was more safe. And then when I was sixteen, right before I went to boarding school for my other this private school in New Haven, my mom killed herself. She had MS, and and her life was falling apart. She killed herself. And, uh, and I really just decided then, I just said, I'm not going to, I don't know how long I'm going to live. So I'm not going to be that guy that like does a different kind of job and then has a novel in a, in a desk that I, that I, that I'm going to pull out when I'm 80. Cause I just didn't know if I was going to make 80. Mm. So I decided instead to the, to the dismay of my dad to sort of burn, be an English major. I just said like to sort of burn the bridges all behind me. So I had no, no, give me no marketable skills. Let me go straight ahead to write this book. So that's when I started Platitudes in my first, in my senior year at Stanford in a creative writing class. But the, the book, so the book that really, like I just started the book. Well, my, my teacher there was this guy named Gilbert Sorrentino, who was a sort of post-Beatnik, really interesting post-structuralist kind of writer. So reading his work really opened my eyes and he turned me on to a bunch of other people like Chief Selby's Last Exit to Brooklyn, which is made into a movie that was like his good friend. And of course, in the, the book that really changed my life was Ishmael Reed's Mumbo Jumbo. Mm-hmm. So then wow. when I read Mumbo Jumbo, I just thought everything is possible. That's exactly the kind of thing that I want to do. And that, that kind of launched my, my real, not just love of writing, but love of that, of, of the type of book. I knew the kind of, kind of the style of book I wanted to write. And from the time that you finished Platted, platted, platitudes, and close that book to your last one. How has your view of writing even changed over that time? Well, I mean, from the beginning, even in platitudes, where I wanted to be a novelist, but in platitudes, I have bits of screenplays. I've got a mock yeah. SAT. I've got every possible kind of writing yeah. inside mock it. SAT. Yeah, that's yeah. awesome. So even when I came to it, even when I came to writing that book, like in college, I was the editor of my humor magazine, the, the Stanford Chaparral. Yeah. And I was really thought that I was going to be like a writer for SNL and, and then also write books and, or write for television, write movies. So I, I, I spent a lot of time writing other things before even getting to the book. Then when I didn't get a job at SNL <laughs> to Italy, where I'd gone, I'd studied overseas with Stanford and Florence and wrote and started that and wrote that draft of that novel. But even then I didn't, I, I was, I had no illusions that it was going to get published right away. I was so young. It was just like right out of college. So I thought I'll write at least a draft of it. And then, you know, I was proofreading and, and freelance journalized and doing a freelance journalist for interview magazine, for Rolling Stone, for just two other things. But then I was lucky enough to have it. it we, we got a, I got a publisher early. So it was, it was just, but that wasn't, it was a hope, but it was, it was more of a dream than a hope. Yeah. You've, you've shared that a lot of your writing you feel is autobiographical. And I, I got a chance to read through a, a lot of right, right here, right now. I was really intrigued by the plot, solemn, summary of it. And I realized like kind of the self-help guru and the not and the novelist are like kind of two sides of, of, of the, the same coin. And that the novelist was even, in a sense, the first self-help guru. But like, I, I feel like there's something about self-help that 
seems cringe for most novelists. And so I just thought it was so fascinating that you chose Ashton Rob, Rob, Robinson as this character to reflect your, your, yourself. But I'm just so curious as to how you found that character and explored his interior. Right. That's a great question. So to, so I write, I write platitudes and then I, I, I really, at that point thought I'd be a novelist and I wrote a novel and then sort of what next? So I started writing, going back, writing movies as well, the Tuskegee Airmen and all that kind of stuff and going back and forth between novels and, and, and screenplays. There was a case in San Diego of a, this man that started a cult in this, this sort of mansion in San Diego and he had bunk beds and he was just bringing the people in there and he was having sex with women and the men were serving him. And I just thought, I just thought it was a really fascinating character. And you're right about like the thing about being a cult leader is like being a, being an artist, not just a, a novelist, but even a playwright or a screenwriter, you're creating worlds and these people, they're not people, you're, they're, they're bending to your will. So I think that that kind of egomania sort of lends itself to also being a cult leader. And yeah, so, so, so I, I liked, I liked that. And that's a funny thing. People read the book and they'll think, yeah, he's a cult leader. He's, he's, he's bad. He does a lot of bad stuff. Right. But he makes sense. Some things he says, I, I believe the stuff that he says myself. Mm -hmm. I thought that was interesting. Mm -hmm. And in terms of how my writing, so that was sort of an interim book. Then I, then I went on to read, I wrote, well, before that, Home, Home Repairs. Yeah. And that was based on my, on my diaries I kept from really 16 to 30. And then I just fictionalized it and fictionalized it. And that was the part of the Ramona Clay that we were talking about, really staying close to myself. Ashton Robinson as a character is pretty close to myself. And then when it came a couple of years ago to write, I just had gone to a lot. My, my first wife had had sort of a break and had left me raising these two kids by myself. So then when I, then when I wrote Bedtime Stories, my creative nonfiction, it was sort of made a lot of sense. That's my latest book to be like, to just break down the walls between fiction and nonfiction, just write a novel about my true, about the true story that, and just, and just not be afraid of writing about the truth. Wow. Wow. Mm. So, so why, like with, with all the possibility, right there, you're, you're talking about blurring the lines between fact and fiction and bringing in your own personal life. And like, what, what does that do for you? Like, it, do you then approach because you're using your own life as like source material? Are you then like, mm -hmm. like playing alternate realities? Are you like learning along the way? Like, is there like a, is there a purpose or like a, I guess like a, an intention with wanting to do that as opposed to doing something that's completely separate from, from your life? Well, with bedtime stories, I knew that I wanted to write about this being a single dad and raising these kids and these things that happened in the past. So I was writing about the past, but I, I knew I wanted to end on sort of this happy note of finding somebody new. But as I kept writing drafts about it, I hadn't found somebody, I hadn't found somebody. So. I just, it did feel like I was kind of auditioning dates at the end to kind of get, give me a fun ending to my book. Um, when you make your own, when you, when you cross these lines, it becomes really uh, funny. There was an SNL sketch about William Randolph Hearst, the, the famous sort of yellow journalist. And he's up in his, his second floor office and it's just, he says, oh, it's a slow news day. That, so what am I going to do? He, he, let, uh, he, he raises the window sash and just like, pulls out a gun and shoots a, shoots a, shoots somebody. And it's like, oh, yeah. whoa, sniper on the loose. And it's like, whoa. And then like, like a week later, it's like that, we need something else. 
So he goes, oh, my God. So he picks up the gun again, and he shoots, and he misses, and he hits a dog. And he says, even dogs aren't safe. He just finds a way to make him the news. So I did feel a little bit of that, which was, which I thought was fun. And I do feel if when you do make yourself, if you do write about yourself a lot, then it does push you to do things because there are experiences that you might write about. Mm-hmm. So if like your friend, if it's like, hey, should I jump out of this airplane or not? It's like it's not as good a story if unless I jump out of it. Like in real life, yeah, I see what you. I see what Fair enough. When when did that SNL sketch sketch come out? It was a long time ago. I can't remember when, but you know, it must be, it could be 20 years ago. Yeah. Cause it's so funny. Cause I recently was watching Unliving Color with my mom and my sister and uh, Kim Wayans was like um, um, impersonating Tracy Chapman. And she was doing the same, same thing where she was like writing her song and like, she would like look out the window and like, see what, you know, man on, man on the street is beating his wife. Da, 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 and then huh. she would look. And she, I, that yeah, is, I remember yeah. that. That is really funny. That, yeah. that, that she was great. Right. Right. Yeah. If you're an observer, if you're doing observational, a humor observational right. thing, then you got to observe stuff. And then your friends know about that too. My wife is a, a sociology professor, but she's, she got an MFA in, in writing as well. And she's, mm-hmm. she has a t-shirt there that their old program got that said, careful or you'll end up in my novel. Ah, <laughs> that's really funny. That's good. But the funny part about that is that even in, in my novels, or even in bedtime stories where I change some people's names, if it's, a lot of people don't recognize it. If you change it enough, they don't recognize it, especially if it's bad behavior. They, mm-hmm. they go, oh, I, I love that character. It's like, well, really? You know what I mean? Like, they don't know that it was, like, based on them. <laughs> or they're like, this person sucks. Like, they yeah. yeah. They have no, oh, it's interesting that you would say that. <laughs> wow. Good to know. That, no, that's good. Yeah, good I know. Yeah. I had the thought, too, given that we share so many just sur- sur- surface com- commonalities, but through reading your books, de- definitely felt kind of my own sense of being afraid of being misunderstood. And right. I was thinking like, man, I feel like writers, given the medium, are always trying and, and know that writing is is the best way of being understood. But then there's also this part of yourself that kind of likes to protect the feeling of being misunderstood and right. being kind of out of grasp. So I was curious to ask too, how, how your feelings towards being under, 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 understood have changed over, over, over time. Yeah, I guess I often, platitudes I was really free because I didn't really think people were going to read it. I just was writing a book that I wanted to read. Mm-hmm. And then with bedtime stories, because I was grown and I had two kids and all that, I did, there was, there's a little bit of a calculus of like what people, like when I first, the first mm-hmm. half of the book is more, what was me, I'm a single dad. And then there are times like there's a lot of sex in the second half where I'm like acting out and doing things. And, and uh, then I did write, I just say, listen, it's, if, if you just wanted to feel good, sweet dad who, who doesn't have a dick, who doesn't care about getting laid again. That's, you should stop reading right now. This is like, but, but when you're trying to actually balance dating and raising kids and all that. Mm. So, and then it's interesting because then when you get a, a bad review of a nonfiction, I got to say is I've had them in good and bad ones. It hurts more because it's like you I feel like this, <laughs> what, as opposed to like your work, it's like they're just saying, Hey, you suck. <laughs> wow. Yeah. Like, so something, 
that I'd love to talk about is the new black aesthetic, your 1989 essay. You were, you had a lot of like growing momentum that you were sharing just with Ishmael Reed's Mumbo Jumbo. I'd love to hear how new black aesthetic like emerged from that time and as well, like how you've seen it evolve in the last like few decades since. Yeah, what's well, funny, again, like at Stanford in my senior year, I graduated a little early, but one of my last classes, two of my two last classes really were foundational for me. One was this creative writing class where I started Platitudes. The other one was a survey course of, of Black history with all the superstar uh, professors we had there. This guy, Arnold Rompersad, who wrote the Langston Hughes biographies, and, and this woman, Sylvia Winter, who, if you don't know, she's yeah. a crazy genius. Incredible, yep deconstructionist and stuff. And so I had all of them like for a couple of weeks at a time. And we, and one of the books they had us read was Addison Gale's collection called The Black Aesthetic with, it's from the sixties and it had Larry Neal, who is Baraka's friend and a bunch of essays from different people. And much, much of the written in the sixties was like, the black aesthetic is Africa and the blues and this is stuff that you would think that you would think this kind of black essentialism. And as a black kid who grew up in these white neighborhoods in, in Connecticut and, and, uh, and Michigan, it wasn't my reality. So then I first started this thing about like a new black aesthetic. And as you guys in the whole real ballers read, you understand that they are using MBA as a sort of paragon of black excellence. And then also as an acronym for something new, I thought was, there's something really cool about that. Mm. A little side note that, uh, the Hank Willis Thomas, you know, the artist, yeah, he's yeah, got, yeah. it's called the NBA with all these jerseys and stuff called it's so there's homage to the new black aesthetic that, 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 that hung in. It's like a quilt that he made that hangs in the, that was in the all-star game last year. What? Oh, that's so, so it's cool. So I had this idea that's then sick. of these two things that people still talk about of the new black aesthetic and the cultural mulatto. And uh, which is a term that I, I thought of as people, cause I knew people at school that were biracial and, but I was raised by black folks on both sides and they were very like race people. They're really like regular old Dayton, Ohio, Philadelphia, black folks are like a B is an F. I don't care what those white boys are doing. You know what I mean? Just all that <laughs> yeah. stuff here. Yeah. Like the tiger moms, when you think about like model minority moms, like these moms and dads, they were, they were those people. And being from Dayton, Dayton is like the South, no offense to Dayton. It's like, and they should yeah. be kind of yeah. Southern <laughs> thing. Like you must work. And then these, it's crazy. <laughs> so that, that was really instilled in me. Mm. So I understood that like, my world of like liking James Taylor and the autobiography of Malcolm X and all this, I just, I felt like I was the only one. Mm. So I wrote it just as a 20 page paper. But when I was in school, a friend of my dad's, he had all these Howard University friends who just, they were just visiting this, this woman was visiting and at Stanford. And I said, Hey, I don't know why I did this. It's just a crazy thing to do, but she was in my room. And I said, do you want to read this paper that I just did? And she just started reading it and she started crying. She, oh, it's so beautiful. Oh. And it's like, wow. What? And it was like the first time anyone has ever read in front of me. Like, it was just like, whoa, I had this kind of had this power. So when I graduated school, so I finished school a little early. I, I stayed around campus and I went back to Italy and I wrote my book in Italy while I was um, working under the table, a bunch of under the table jobs. I worked in the gym where I just told them, I wanted to go to the gym. I didn't have any money. I told them that I was an ex-NFL player and that like, they should just let me be a weight trainer because none of them knew anything about gyms are new there. They just like, it was easy. <laughs> so, so I got paid and I got to go to the gym and I taught English and did stuff while I was writing my book. Then I finished that, the, I finished the manuscript, which I wrote a longhand because there's also, it was before PCs. 
Mm. I wrote longhand in, in these in these notebooks, and then gave it to a friend, wrapped it up in duct tape, gave it to a friend, and brought it back to the states. Then I traveled through Africa for about hitchhiking for about four or five months, came back, and then I started doing the 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 rewrite of the book. When I was starting to do the rewrite of the book, I really kept thinking about the new black aesthetic and. I thought it could be a good, I, I'd done some journalism by then because I'd worked at Newsweek for, as a summer intern. So I'd, I'd done some profiles of people and some freelance journalism, but I thought, you know what, with my book coming out, when it was starting to come out, I, I contacted the New York Times Magazine and I said, I've got this idea called the New Black Aesthetic. And I would like to go around and just talk to all these different people. Because when I first got out of school, so I was reeling back a little. I was working at Interview Magazine, which is Andy Warhol Interview Magazine, and it was literally in the factory with Andy Warhol's there. I saw some every day. It was crazy. And then, so I was just proofreading, but they had some, they said, oh, you're young. What's what's happening in New York now? So it's like, and this is like the hip, play, hippest magazine in the world. Yeah. So I just reached out to people and I met this guy, Warrington Hudlin and his brother, Reggie Hudlin then, because they had the Black Rock Coalition or Warrington had founded this thing. I met my friend Vernon Reed, who I just had lunch with yesterday. These are friends from that long wow. ago, 23, because he and Greg Tate, who's also from Dayton, Ohio, and DC, yeah. like yeah. the, uh, and we have the same birthday. Greg and I were best, best friends. Wow. And when I met him uh, and had read Cult Natmik's Freak E.D., his famous seminal Village Voice piece, I thought that's the kind of thing that I was writing mm. in college. So I pitched this idea to the Times and they let me just travel around the world and around the country and talk to all these people like the choreographer, Bill T. Jones, George C. Wolf, people that were not famous at the time. Chris Rock was you know, 19, a couple of years younger than me. And so I just interviewed everybody I could, everybody I wanted to interview to put them in, to put it into that place, into that piece. So they sort of happened at the same time, the book coming out and the new black aesthetic. Wow. Wow. Mm. And the funny part about it, so that, so then my, my cut to like uh, how many, so many years later, my son just graduated. He graduated from Harvard, yes, like three days ago. And he, yeah, we'll get, we can get him a job. If you have any job leads, I'll, I'll, I'll pass them on. <laughs> he, he, he would never, he refused to read that piece. Though he was major, he was writing his, his thesis is on black humor, right? Uh, he's all the stuff in his, and even, and his professor, Glenda Carpio, she at Harvard had invited me and Paul Beatty to a new black aesthetic like week of stuff at Harvard, let's say 20 years ago, 15 years ago. So he still would not read the things. Like, so finally I, he came back home and I just said, you, you can't live around free unless you read this thing. And then he finally read it. He's like, oh yeah, this is great. It's like, it's exactly, I was exactly his age. You know what I mean? It's exactly yeah. that, the kind wow. of, the enthusiasm I had. And so we talk about how it's changed. It's a long way of answering. The difference is that the, the sort of the black first, the black first something. I still get that in Hollywood sometimes, but it's really played out. Like you can't really say, oh, here's the first black rodeo clown. You know what I mean? Let's make a movie about the bird. Like who, it's like, is that really, really what's new about that? Mm -hmm. uh, so that's been really interesting. And then when I see people like Donald Glover and mm -hmm. Lena Waithe in some ways, and it's, it's certainly a key and Peele and Jordan Peele's work. I'd see that as like really the sort of barrier breaking stuff that, that I think me and my, the first sort of like, not first group, the group of friends that I grew up with, that I came up with artistically, mm -hmm. were starting to do that we were, and then we were looking, we were standing on the shoulders of, of Ishmael Reed and, and all of his friends who was looking at, so it just, it just it keeps going. Mm. Yeah. Would you say that? Would you say that 
a lot of the cultural production today still falls under new black aesthetic or is there like a new new black aesthetic or how how do you see like the 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 changes in the generations as well as just how much technology has changed and like even where people are engaging with different media forms is totally different now because of phones and whatnot yeah i mean a lot of stuff has changed but the idea that like a black artist can kind of that there is no such thing as like some black art is what it is it's like it's all encompassing it's it's nice that we're people are much more free now but it's also true that people have people also have there's still you get this pushback of essentialism sometimes like like I live in this town, like growing up, like you guys were talking about being in Deerfield and, and it snows and I started cross-country skiing there. I grew up in the Northeast, right? So I live here in Connecticut. One day it snowed really hard and I got on my cross-country skis and I skied down into, I live like just a quarter mile from town. And my friend, Brett, who always supported me, he's like, that's the widest thing I ever heard. But black people don't ski, cross-country ski. And it's like, still, it's like, what, yeah. what do you mean? Like, like we can do. So that still bothers me, that sense of like, Everything and then think about basketball. The, the story I always tell about basketball is so funny because I'm tall, and I was at Sundance with my first screenplay, mm-hmm. and we're I'm developing, and then we're in. We go from Sundance up on the mountain to Provo, and which is the biggest city nearby. And they're at the gym, and I never pick up a basketball because I've always been really terrible at basketball. But I always had a thing in these white neighborhoods. People would like get I get picked first, and I'd be the worst person on the team, and they'd be oh, like, oh. "Nice." So the Wait a minute. Yeah. Surprise, surprise. So then, so I'm just like, let me pick up, the, no one's around. Let me just pick up this ball. So I pick up this, the, pick up the rock, as I guess ballers, you ballers say. And I'm starting to try some free throws, just like brick, bang, bang, you know, it's like nothing, right? <laughs> and I hit this little mister, and I turn around, it's like a little blonde Sally Sue who behind me. She's like, this little Mormon girl says, mister, you're the worst basketball player I've ever seen. I didn't even know her. You know what I mean? Just like, wow. I did not ask you, five-year-old little girl, but, you know, thank you for that. <laughs> should have told her to make a shot right there. I know. Right. She probably would have. She probably, like, <laughs> That's hilarious. Yeah. Like, talking through this essentialism a little bit, I feel it is just a little bit of, just the limitation of words and and terms in right. in general and you know two that i really thought thought of when i was reading the new the new black aesthetic was now now nelson george's term post soul and then greg right. tate's term post liberated which you used in in the essay and yeah i was just always confused as to what those meant and i yeah, just to to be post anything when when we're always in in the midst of all these changes. But what 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 do those terms mean to you, if if anything? Because I think they they yeah, are, they're all Nelson's still yeah. a good friend, and Greg, as I said, was one of right. my best friends, and I still yeah. feel lost. Yeah, Greg was a little different and very specific about this cult nats, these cultural nationalists, red, black, and green. The Baraka after his, his conversion, meet Freaky Deek, meet like the weirdos, like who were just like uncategorizable. So I think that makes sense. And this sense that there's more than just the liberation struggle, more than just the revolution, what comes mm-hmm. next. Uh, the, and I think that Nelson was saying something similar, like this post, like when he says post-soul, he's really, he's more of a sort of an R&B critic, kind yeah. of sense of like soul music and R&B and that sort of being the center of blackness mm. and, and post-soul includes everybody coming to Prince and 
rock and roll and, mm-hmm. and some Michael Jackson, just lots of stuff that's like, that's, that's new and different. And again, like, so, so some things are really, really new, but then I think of like, like the biggest country song in the world is about a black man, you know what I mean? Just like these things happen <laughs> and they don't even can't, can't, they can't wrap their heads around these things. So we made a lot of strides in some ways and then a lot of time we haven't, or, and, or we just go back to some kind of crazy essentialism mm-hmm. where like you're writing a black country song and it's just got to be about being like the speck in the butter, I'm a speck in the buttermilk or something. It's like, well, really, can't you just, it's, 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 it's both inspiring to see how much new stuff is happening, but also depressing to think of how retrograde so many attitudes are still around. And even from black folks too, just like, again, like my friend saying, black folks, you know, we don't ski or, or feeling like we, or we have to overperform, like to say, yeah. like we have to, well, even let's say I love real ballers read makes sense. Right. I like, I like it as a term, but you also have to like, you shouldn't have to like explain yourself in some ways either. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. That's a great point. Yeah, and that, and that actually gets to what we've been saying about the new black aesthetic, but something that really uh, stuck with me was just the importance of defining your identity for yourself and like on your own terms, on the terms of your experience and how you want to write, just like live in the world and also move forward. And yeah, like how how do you do that, right? <laughs> or like look, looking back so far, like, how how have you done that? How are you doing it right now? Of course, that has a lot to do with with writing in the sense that we do like write who we are very much. But yeah, I'm just curious, like your your take on defining I- your identity for yourself. Right. Well, that's the part about being yourself. It's such a cliche, but every time I listen to that Sting song, "Be Yourself, No Matter What They Say," an Englishman in New York, he's I, I realize that like the the chameleon aspects, because I'm sure people at your colleges that like, you meet somebody, they just sound really like a hood of wow. And then you find, you talk to them some more, you go back to their house and they're, they're bi- you didn't even know they're biracial. You know what I mean? Their mom is from Sweden or Dutch or something. Then just like, you just all it was all an affect or they're just really rich and their dad's a Republican. It's just all these different things are happening, but they're feeling like they, they clearly is kind of hiding some parts of themselves. And one of my favorite things I wrote about in the cultural, in the new black aesthetic is that when I talked about meeting Reggie Hudlin and Greg and all these people that I didn't know before, that it felt like meeting twins, the twins reuniting who were separated at birth. Yeah. That I thought I was the only one that liked these different kind of things. So when I got together, when I was, so when I wrote Platitudes only for myself, mm. people respond to it. I was like, oh, so by bringing my truth and, 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 and being, not, and being sort of fearless and thinking, look, some in the black community are not going to respond well for, to, to like, let's say platitudes where I'm satirizing the kind of Maya Angelou, sort of, you know, sort of stereotypical, typical sort of black, which I called Afro Baroque glory stories, like a typical, like sort of, and, and Alice Walker, of course, more, most famously. But I think there's also, because I, I lean much more towards the Ishmael Reed side of mm-hmm. things, but I was talking about both sides of these things. So certainly when the book came out, some of the first reviews of the people that were really on that other side were just said, this is disrespectful and you can't be doing this. And I don't know what this is. It's weird. It's like the, it's our struggle is too serious for you to be having a, a fake SAT in the middle of your book. Oh, wow. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, I got a lot of that. Mm. And that was part of like, well, so what happened with the new black aesthetic is that, so I wrote it for the New York times magazine. We took this amazing photo yeah. with They've seen that's just amazing it's on my website. It's just like everybody's on it. It's like the people, it's just, it's crazy time capsule. 
And then, and Nelson George has a whole, I don't know if you've seen Smart Black People on, you can rent it on Netflix, I think it is. And it's a documentary he made about the, 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 the shoot, the photo shoot, sort of like you have all the thing and interviewing all the people and then other people like Kumo D and some other people that weren't, weren't on it. But, and I just found out from Fat Pipe, Freddie's still a good friend and uh, we're working on something together. He told me that, that Jean-Michel Basquiat was supposed to, he, he invited him the night before, but he just overslept. So he missed out on the photo shoot. The, but the, the New York Times, so they, they, they paid me for it. They made, I did many, many drafts and they did the photo, but then they ultimately decided to kill the piece. But I, I still wanted to, I still liked it. So it was going to be this cover story. So I, just, I still liked it. So I, I submit, I, I think in talking to Ishmael Reed, he suggested I talk to this UVA's, I think it's UVA, the, the, they published Callaloo, which is this black, it was a, at the time, the premier black literary, intellectual magazine. Mm. So they published it. And also Ishmael Reed has, I think, called the Before Columbus Foundation. He published it in his sort of smaller circulation, small piece. So just those two things, but especially Callaloo, that's where it kind of blew up. And then they, they ran the next ep- issue, like just a series of this, all the letters from people writing in pro and against just like, what, who does it think wow. he is? Or this is something. So it sort of, it took off from that. And the, it just, to me, I'm as surprised as anybody that to this day, I get little email notifications that someone else is like, if you, if you're writing, if you're writing about black art, you're, you're, you're probably going to quote it. Man, how, how many times is the New York Times going to be on the wrong side of history, man? Then <laughs> threw themselves no, over. I know, seriously, yeah. Wow. No, it would have been amazing. Like, if you see that picture, imagine that picture. Yeah. Everything really wanted to be like a manifesto, like like the Futurist or the Beats or something. I wanted to say, New, here we are. Here are all these right. people. Here's what we're doing. Look at us. Trust me, these people are all going to go off and do something. And they're like, yeah. And it's like every single one of those people, every yeah. single one of them has gone off to do something amazing. Seriously. Seriously. What have you re- recently just been think- thinking about or mulling over? Or reading. Yeah. I'm working with Fat Pat Freddy about a, a TV show about a downtown and his friendship with, with Basquiat. But I'm working on a TV show, not with the strike, I have to stop, but we're shooting. It stars, it's going to start Jesse Williams from Grey's Anatomy. And it's, he's, he plays a half black, half Italian, uh, private detective, house detective in a five-star hotel on the Amalfi Coast in Italy. And, and that shoots in the, in the, in September. Oh, wow. September. And then I've been working forever on a, on a, T on a, it was a movie first. And then I thought maybe it's a play. And then now it's a TV show for the FX channel, which is a, it's called Holy Mackerel. And it's the rise and fall of the, of Amos and Andy. Yeah. And it's been starred Sam Jackson. He's also a producer. He stars as this guy named Kingfish, who was Amos and Andy was a radio show with Amos and Andy and Kingfish. who was like their, you know, sort of, he really, even though it's not in the name, he's like the lead. He's like the, the, the irascible trickster guy. And, and that's going to be a limited series for FX. Yeah. That's super cool. Just sounds like heat. Yeah, Yeah. no, seriously. And, and just now you were saying like, you thought it was going to be a play, then a movie, then TV show. Like, how do you see the difference between the mediums, like paired with whatever the story idea is? Well, this one came about that they first came to me, Henry Louis Gates from Skip Gates from Harvard was a friend of my dad's when he was at Yale. And so we always kept in touch and. His, he's, he's, he's a, his creative partner is this guy, Henry Fiender, who's the executive editor, our number two guy at the New Yorker and who had, they had a deal at HBO. I mean, they still do. And then they came to me with this, wanting to do this thing about 
the real story of Amos and Andy. And they asked, what do you know about Amos and Andy? And so I just, I just thought, I just made my stomach turn. I said, I don't know what that is. I just think it's like, step and fetch it. And then they said, why don't you read up about it, look at it and, and realize that no, it's really a very, very different story. The real story of these guys, it's an amazing story. It began as a radio show in the 1920s. These two white guys who were, who came from minstrels, see, which is true. They did a bunch of other different characters, but then those two just took off in the 20s. But from the 20s to the 50s, it was the most popular radio show of all time. It was the first to be broadcast coast to coast. It was so popular that people, they would say like, um, they would stop movies in the middle of the movie on Thursday nights at eight when it was going to air. So they could, so, so they wheel a radio onto stage so people could hear the next episode. They invented these white guys Gazan and Carell invented the idea of serial storytelling. Because before that, radio was like a, a bunch of jokes, sort of like the Prairie Home Companion. Like it'd be a bunch of jokes and some music and variety kind of program. Mm -hmm. They had this idea of like, we're going to tell a story that's going to build week to week to week. If you remember last week, we did this, this week, that. And so they, they invented that. So you have to give them some props. But it comes to the 1950s and all these radio shows, Jack Benny and all the big radio shows are moving to television. And these guys want to be on television too. They're the richest guys in Hollywood. They've got the richest house, the biggest house in Hollywood. They're just amazing. They own their own business. They're just multimillionaires. And, uh, but how could they be in their own show? There's actually, it's amazing. They thought they were too old then, but they even thought about putting people, putting people in blackface. I've got some, they've since been taken down, but if you search on the internet, you can find some of these screen tests. But then they said, you know, we've got to find real black actors, but in their fifties to play these guys. So they go on this national casting call. And they find this guy, Spencer Williams, who's going to be Wendell Smith, Wendell Pierce. And he's our, he, he's our lead. He was, Spencer Williams was, if the early cinema, he and Oscar Marcheau were the two sort of kings of the two most famous black filmmakers at the time. He made a movie called Blood of Jesus, which is in the National Registry, just like a masterpiece, a genius man. He, he'd been in Italy and World War I as a spy. He went to Kaiwan University of Minnesota. He came back to early days of Hollywood, made a ton of different movies and the sound guy and director. He was just like all around re Renaissance man. But by the time in the 1950s, he's all been but forgotten. He's living in Tulsa, Oklahoma, and he is like teaching radio repair to veterans because he was a veteran himself. Wow. So they're trying to find him. CBS is trying to find him. So he's just there fixing some radios in this, in the storefront trade school when he hears if Spencer Williams can hear our voice. Please report to the radio station. They just had a hunch because they're pre-internet, right? They just thought someone said that maybe they thought this game might be there. Huh. So it's like, so, so it's just an amazing story of how these guys get together, the three of them. And then Kingfish guy, Tim Moore, was one of the most famous vaudevillians of anybody. He was like, he sold, he sold comedy, comedy routines to W.C. Fields. He had, he would, as a teenager, he, he ran away to Hawaii because he's a light-skinned black guy and pretend to be Hawaiian. And he would just speak Hawaiian gibberish to the white tourists and giving them tour, tour guides. And he was a boxer and a horse race, just like total, wow. did everything, right? But now he was like 60 years old working in a, in a factory when they find him. So these guys are plucked from nothing. So for two years while it's on the air, it becomes the most, the hottest show on television. Eight months before I Love Lucy, they get, they get nominated for an Emmy. They just like, they just have this amazing ride up. And then what happens is the NAACP headed by this guy, Walter White, who's actually looks white. And he's so white looking that his superpower was that he would go, both his parents were, were super white looking black people in Atlanta. He would, he would go undercover into the South 
and investigate lynchings, pretending to passing for white. And so he was a brave guy, but very, very about very, like he thought, like a lot of us, like bourgeois people, like my parents hated anybody middle-class and upper middle-class, they hated Amos and Andy with a passion and he wanted it killed. So he orchestrates the first ever boycott to get it taken off the air. But while working class people like Skip Gates' family, that's it's sort of like Tyler Perry's work, but they, they oh, said, wow. we're seeing ourselves and they are, they were, they are huge fans. So once it got taken off the air, they were sad. And then the, the, the irony is it's taken off the air on CBS primetime, but then the FCC opens up all these different channels. So now there's this UHF channel. So all these local stations blow up. Instead of just having three national net network stations, you have hundreds of local stations that need programming. So it's one of the first shows to go into reruns and syndication. So that's where it was the people that you know now that are alive that had seen it, they probably saw it in syndication because it ran in syndication till the 60s, till the middle 60s. And when people finally said, look, this is crazy. We got to get ready for the show. Wow. That is an unbelievable story. Yeah, that is. I did not know. Yeah, no um, clue about it. No, it's really cool. But it's also very, so it's a comedy about a tragedy, the tragedy about a comedy. It's really, it's fun. Because mm-hmm. I'm pretty sure Amos and Andy are on the cover of Ethnic no- Notions by Marlon Riggs. Yeah, yeah, sure. Yeah. Yeah, they became, they, they were synonymous with that. And people thought of them like, and even Stephen Fetch is going to be a character in my show. Really interesting guy. It's like, obviously he wasn't born that way. And there are other guys like that. There's a guy in, in the show called Lightning because he's so slow. But Stephen Fetchett, really interesting guy because he he had a, he had like, I think it was like a pink Rolls Royce. This is in the 20s and he was like at the wow. height of it. Like pink Rolls Royce with like a neon sign in the, in the, in the window that said like Stephen Fetchett. Like just like create, like he just really, and he had, <laughs> he, so he'd play these servile, terrible, terrible roles. With all that money, he had this big ass house and he'd have all these like Chinese servants like waving for him, waving it with fans. He was just out of his mind. It's just like crazy. Wow. And Wade Do Pierce too just won a Tony, right? He did not win the Tony. He, he got nominated for the Tony for Death of the Salesman, but he didn't right. win. Oh, he, he didn't win. Dang. Yeah, Dang. he should. Yeah. He, he's next up though, for sure. Well, um, mm. We've grilled you for like going on an hour now. I I, I know that you. It's uh, not a grilling. It's been a, a yeah. absolute treat. Just like it's just talking to you. It's amazing. Yeah. Thank you. Are there any books that you can recommend for our audience? Yeah. I'm, I'm just reading a book now called uh, The Stone Face. It's mm-hmm. a New York Review of Books. They have a lot of, they take a lot of books that have been out of print, like Oreo, Oreo that, a lot of these great books from the 60s and 50s that have been out of print. And this is this guy named William Gardner Smith, who's mm. a black expatriate in Paris. And it's about being in Paris in the 50s. And I, I lived in Paris for a while and I just, I'm, I'm, I sort of collect a bunch of those books. It's a really interesting read about his, mm. and about when, that world. And when Stone did it come face. out? Okay. It came out, I think, in the early, middle 60s. Wow. I've never even heard of it. Yeah, I hadn't, I hadn't either until I read about it. I read that it had been. So I reissued and then I, then I, then I picked it up. That's crazy. They, thank you. Yeah. Yeah, no, that's great. I'll check it out. All well, right, thank bet. you guys so much. It's been just a, yeah. just a treat. Make sure you send me the link. So I'll send it out to everybody. I know I want everybody to look at it and get to know your, your podcast. I love yeah, what you definitely. Do. No, this is, this has been really enjoyable. Thank you so yeah, much, man. Dre, for being on our show. Yeah. We, we will send it to you as soon as possible. We'll be coming out with it on Friday. Excellent. Yeah. Mm-hmm. All right, guys. Have a good time. Yeah.
Yeah, yeah. Me too. Thank you. Peace. Bye.